0: There we go. There was a little more. I don't think we missed anything. That steak was good. We'll still recap the message because we're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, before I dive in, uh, two quick things. Uh, my name is Kevin, I'm the youth director here at Shores Community Church. Pastor Nate is with uh, his son and several other dads and their boys on the father son camping trip this weekend. He'll be back up to continue our message next week. So uh, we obviously are just continuing to pray over him. Uh, the messages that they are hearing about uh, what it looks like to be a man in Christ as well as just giving God glory for all of the good gifts he gives us on this earth. Uh, two quick things. One is just a reminder and you'll see an email coming out uh, the last Tuesday in July is our middle school trip to Michigan's Adventure. The first Tuesday in August is our high school trip to Cedar Point. Sign-up sheets are right out on this desk, and it's cheap. It's only 20 bucks for Michigan's Adventure and 25 for Cedar Point, Uh, but I need a head count ahead of time so we can get our chaperones and our buses and all of that, so please make sure you sign up. Last thing is you saw the note on VBS, and uh, we're so excited to have that finally running again in our church this summer and our church family has been incredible about meeting the needs that we have filling up a lot of the volunteer spots and supporting it financially so that we can give food and dinner every single day or evening for our VBS but we still have some needs for leaders this is great opportunity for teens great opportunity for adults and I'm just asking you please to consider and prayerfully consider signing up and helping us out there Uh, That that specific position is where our greatest need is right now. Um, Megan has done an incredible job of filling in all the details, so this won't be overwhelming. It'll be a lot of fun. Uh, Please consider. If you have any questions, you can come see me or head up back to the gym following the service and see Megan, and she'll give you the information that you need. So, uh, we are continuing our message then on the Sermon of the Mount. Last week, Pastor Nate went through the Beatitudes. That that got us through 11 or 12 verses of chapter 5. And then today, we're covering a massive chunk. We're going to get through the rest of the chapter of chapter 5. And we're going to see then that Jesus is going to challenge our walk because he is asking for more out of a Christian out of a disciple, and he's painting the picture. And here's what I want you to remember. When Jesus goes through these commands, when he goes through the Beatitudes, and then throughout the rest of the chapter, no one is really saying, like, amen. No one is saying, praise God, this is what I'm excited about. This entire message was incredibly challenging to the Jews at that time. They understood what the Torah, the Old Testament the law that God handed down, the written law, they knew what it said. And much of what Jesus was saying was, comp- was running completely counter to what they had understood the law to be and what they understood the law to say. I'll get into that. My question for you this morning, do we have any like strict rule followers in the house today? Yeah. <laughs> Cecil, I see you. Those, excuse me, those, right, maybe if you're working in nine to five, you are working straight to five. That's what your job is. That's what they've called you to do. So you're not ending at 458 or 459. You're going to work all the way through. Those are my rule followers. And then you have some people on the other side of the spectrum like me. Amen. And so when we see what we do is we take a rule and we kind of uh, use as much space around this rule as we can. An example might be uh, when you're at a pool in the summertime and they say, no running. And then I'm like, well, I can jog and I can skip. It just said, don't run. It didn't say the others. So I'm good, right? Or if it says, no diving, cannonball, because it didn't say anything about no cannonballs. And so we take these rules, right, and we use them to our benefit And what we miss at times is the spirit of that rule. Because the whole idea around not diving and not running is that it keeps us safe, right? So the challenge that we have then as we enter this part of Scripture for us this morning is that we have the Pharisees and the scribes and they were taking these rules on both ends. They would either layer on to the Torah, the written law, what they call the oral tradition. And so they would layer on and just say, hey, this thing means this, you're going to see, and that means anything underneath or around it is okay. Jesus says no. Or they try and carry it to the letter of the law, and Jesus still says you're missing the spirit of what I've commanded you, or what I'm calling you to. And that's what we're going to see. So in this large chunk of Scripture, what I want to lay out for you then is what is the main point? The main point is as Christians... As disciples of Jesus, we are called to a higher standard of living. We are called not to look like the world. Jesus calls us to obey his teaching. He says, love God, love others. And then he says, go and make disciples, teaching them to do all the things that I have commanded you. So he calls us to obey and to follow him. And, and then how we live needs to reflect Jesus, not to glorify us, but everything that we do actually points to the cross. It points to Jesus. And then he goes on to say, hey, by the way, when you actually get this and you're living like a Christian, the world is going to hate you. The world is going to persecute you and then embrace it and love them anyway. This is what we're called to do as Christians. So then he enters here this Sermon of the Mount. And what's happening, just at the end of chapter 4, Jesus has just started his ministry. And so he's going around preaching the good news, and then he's doing all kinds of healing. He's healing the lepers. He's healing those who are crippled. He's healing those who have uh, diseases, those who were suffering from seizures, those who were paralyzed. And this group of people that he's bringing healing to were the cast offs by society. Because most of them, as they were viewed by Jews, right, is their infirmaries were the result of their own sin. Essentially, it's their own fault. And Jesus then is doing all these crazy, amazing, wonderful healings. And now he's got a crowd. And this huge gathering across all the, the uh, region of Judea is now starting to follow him. And so he goes up on this hill. It's not quite a mountain, but on this large hill and he takes a seat that position of authority and then he talks to his disciples at this point he had called four of them he called Peter and Andrew John and James and then besides these first four disciples you have who have sold out for Jesus so they see who he is mostly and now you have these other members of a group or other members of a crowd and they are not quite in the boat yet with Jesus. They've heard some crazy things about him. They like what he's doing as far as doing all these healings. Uh, so they want to hear more of what he has to say. And then you have this other group. These group this group is quite skeptical. And they're really not sure what he's saying. They're doubting. This, because it sounds so foreign. They're really not sure he is who he says he is. And then when we come together like this, I imagine that in this room we have most of those three groups here. Those who are sold out for Jesus, those who enjoy and appreciate the message but they haven't quite surrendered, and those who are dragged along by the one they're sitting next to this morning. And I'm still glad you're here to hear the message. Okay, so it's at this point Jesus starts talking. He covers the Beatitudes. Remember, opposite of what they understood. Jesus says this, Blessed are those who are completely reliant on God rather than caught up in their pride. Blessed are those who mourn deeply over their own sin and the sin of the world rather than pursue happiness at any cost. Blessed are those who renounce the right to their own life and live for the sake of God rather than seek their own power. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to do more of God's will rather than pursue their own needs. Blessed are those who extend mercy to the downtrodden, the outcast, those hated by society. Blessed are the ones who are willing to sacrifice their own honor to protect the honor of others who are made in God's image rather than exercise their own power to someone else's detriment. Blessed are those who have completely surrendered authority of their own life to Jesus rather than practice deception and attempt to maintain control. Blessed are those who make peace with others. Blessed are those who meet the wicked and are ready to suffer at their hands rather than pursue personal peace without any concern for other people. Blessed are those who are rejected by the world, who suffer for godly actions, who have renounced their possessions, their fortune, their honor, and their own rights for the sake of following Christ rather than having a weak commitment to to God and your persecution for being obedient to Jesus and his commands is a blessing to you rejoice in your persecution and be glad for his sake and this teaching is completely opposite of what the Jews had understood and then coming out of this Jesus talks about the salt and light and salt was a valuable commodity during this time. In fact, the Romans had used it for, uh, to make like payroll. They had paid their guards in salt. It had value. And then salt in its nature had a use, right? It acted as a preservative. Uh, it acted to tenderize. It acted to purify. And so Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth. And so I'm asking you and calling you then to go out, right, and preserve society, You are the light of the world, and by nature the light is to shine. Not to point to yourself, but by your good deeds, you will point other people to me. And even in this, the Jews would have struggled to hear this message. Because they had the law. They had sacrifices. There wouldn't be a need to be salt to preserve this for other people. The Jews already had what they needed from God. And then the other part is this idea of being light, why the the, uh, the Gentiles, those who were lower than the Jews, those who had less value than the Jews, the Jews did not even see them as being worthy of salvation. So why would the Jew be the light to the Gentile and try and draw them to Christ? This is a difficult message for them to understand. So difficult that they started asking, is Jesus canceling out the law? And Jesus, excuse me, Jesus knowing that says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And what we see then woven through here is the great commandment to love God in our righteous living and our obedience to his calling and that we love others genuinely without legal structure. Jesus says he will fulfill the law, but he's going to reject that oral tradition The oral law created legalism and not relationship. And Jesus says, I want your heart. So he goes through then six principles. And the first one talks about murder. And he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. He's getting at our anger. See again. Uh, the Jewish law just said the wrong part was murder. Anything underneath of that was okay. Jesus says no. Harboring anger is the same as committing murder. And now you as disciples, as Christians, I am calling you to not be angry. In the void of anger, we have room for love. But how do we ex- exercise our anger today? Some of you may have gotten angry on your way to church because of how someone else was driving. Some of you may have gotten angry at your children for keeping you behind this morning or your spouse, right? Some of us might be angry with a coworker or with our boss. And God is saying this anger that you're harboring is the same as murder. But these areas are easy to identify for us. But what about some of the others? Could some of you be angry with the government and some of the choices that they're making? What about with some of the movements that we see, regardless of what side you're on? What about the LGBTQ community? What about those who believe in Black Lives Matter or critical race theory? Regardless of where you fall, what happens as Christians is then we start to harbor anger and resentment because we don't agree with some of the things that they propose and then our anger transfers to entire people groups and jesus is saying that anger that we have as christians is the same as murder and i am calling you to more i am calling you to love and then jesus gets that reconciliation he says therefore If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar and go get reconciled before you come back. And here's what he's getting at here. People in all of their righteousness, right, looking the part of a Christian will come in and present their offerings to God. And everything they do outside of the Sabbath or outside of a service doesn't look like a Christian. And in all of their arrogance, and in all of their pride, and how they treat people throughout the week, they're actually offending and pushing people away from Christ, rather than drawing them to it. And then in their pride, they don't see their own sin. They are completely blind to it. And Jesus doesn't want this dirty offering. He says, I would rather you know that your actions are pushing people away from God and they are offensive. Go get reconciled to the one that you have wronged through your attitude and actions, make right with them and then come back and see me. This is what Jesus is asking of us. And then after that, he gets after it with adultery. Same thing with this adultery. The Pharisees, they only saw the actual act of adultery as being the sin. So you could still look at someone lustfully and it not be a sin. The Jews at that time could make crude and lewd comments to women and it would not be considered inappropriate or sinful. And Jesus is saying, no, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already already committed adultery with her in his heart. And how does that transfer for us today? Because we hide behind legalism. Some Christians do. And so we say, I'm not committing adultery. I'm not actually cheating on my husband or my wife. I'm only looking through pictures and videos on my phone. And then we try and hold ourselves clean. You may also then say, well, I don't even have a smartphone and I don't have access to the websites but every time that you're looking at another person man or woman you're undressing them in your mind and God is saying you are called to more as a Christian you are committing adultery and then some people may hide behind their age they may say well I'm old and retired and I just don't even have those thoughts anymore It's funny, though, because I'm telling you, this was a couple of years back, and we were having dinner, and this uh, retired woman was sitting there very much admiring this young guy who was super attractive. And she's, so she had made this comment, and we're all like, whoa. She goes, what? I may be old, but I'm not dead, you know? And this, this just goes to show that we're not protected by our age. We still show our sinful nature and our sinful desires. Anything that goes beyond seeing a brother or a sister as being beautiful and created in God's image, whenever our mind goes beyond that, we commit adultery against our own spouse. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. In fact, he's saying, hey, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. And sometimes we jump into this and say, all right, that's crazy. Is he being literal? No, he's using a hyperbole. He's using an exaggeration to make his point. Because some of us may say, well, I'm so bored, I could die. Well, you're actually not going to die from your boredom, but you're actually driving home the point. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing about how we see our sin. I was thinking about this. It was a week ago Saturday, not yesterday, the prior week, and I was at home, and I was mowing the back lawn. And anyone that knows me, I'm in shoes today. I would rather be in sandals, and to be honest with you, I'd rather be in bare feet. And so I like to mow my lawn in bare feet. The challenge is we have two dogs at home. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I had not gotten around to cleaning the landmines before I started mowing. And I'm still, I'm, still in my, I'm still mowing. And so I'm walking across, and then there's a fresh one. And uh, like slow motion. And I felt it like squeeze through my toes. Right? And it's at this moment, I'm like, oh, that's so nasty. It's so bad. It's so, i like shutting up the mower, and I go against the hose, and I'm trying to squirt it off my feet, and I grab a brush, and I'm trying to scrub it off. Like, it is, oh, like literally, it is so nasty. <laughs> I'll do whatever I can to get clean. This is how Jesus wants us to approach our sin. It is completely repulsive. And we will do whatever it takes to separate ourselves from that filth that engages our life. This is what he is calling for. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in, his, in the book, Cost of Discipleship, he says, "...no sacrifice is too great if it enables us to conquer a lust which cuts us off from Jesus." And this is what he is asking for our attitudes to be about those things that separate us from him. He calls us to more. And then Jesus goes into this principle of divorce. What was happening then is the same thing that is happening now. We justify, by any means necessary, why we shall no longer be in marriage. So here it says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. He goes on later in the book of Matthew to clarify that God gave Moses these outs, not as his, like, uh, uh, I'm losing the word, allowance for divorce. It's because everyone's hearts were so hard, and we were still missing the point. God's design, God's desire for marriage, this covenant, is that uh, uh, which is between one man and one woman for life, this is the design of marriage, is that uh, we would exercise self-discipline and self-denial to each other the same way, as well as obedience, the same way that we do to Jesus Christ. And this is where he's calling us for more. And if we are loving our spouse the way that we are called to, we wouldn't enter in to as much conflict as what we see. And after he talks about divorce, Jesus gets into the oaths, these promises and the vows. And so one problem was that everyone was trying to break their oaths and break their vows. And I don't know, I'm 47, so... Uh, I don't know if you remember when you were a kid, when we didn't want to make a vow or keep our promise, we had no intention, we crossed our fingers, right? You're we like, uh-uh, see? And this is what was happening here, is that people were just finding they had no intention of keeping their promises. And Jesus' challenge then is to be a person of integrity. And then the other challenge is that they were swearing by all of these things. We did this as kids. Like, I swear by my mama, and I swear by my grandmother, and I swear by this, or I swear by that. and It meant nothing. And Jesus calls us not to swear by him at all. So as a workaround to the law, they would simply swear by heaven, or by earth, or by Jerusalem. And God is saying, Jesus is saying, hey, we, I created all of that. All of it belongs to me. As you swear by them, you're still swearing by my name. Your yes is enough, and your no is enough, and that's all it needs to be. And reading through this, I think about my grandfather. He just passed away this last February. But this was a man who hated contracts. He hated them. They were necessary at times. But he just wanted, a man was only as good as his word. His handshake was all that was needed for the contract. And this is the spirit of where Jesus is getting at. We shouldn't be thinking about how we get out of our commitments, how we get out of our agreements We just need to allow our yes to be yes and our no to be no and that is it. And then Jesus talks about eye for an eye. You have heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth but I tell you do not resist an evil person. If they slap you on the right cheek, turn to them the other. If they sue you and ask for your shirt, give them your coat. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two. And so What's happening here is they were actually referencing uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy in the Old Testament where God talks about these, but the purpose was not that common individuals like you and I would exercise this. This was left for like the judges to make right between things, and people were taking it amongst themselves. So I would decide how you would make it right by me, and Jesus is saying, hey, you're still getting it wrong. Do not resist an evil person. Let it go. And this would have been still contrary to the Jews at this time. They were under Roman rule, Roman oppression, Roman deities, although the Romans allowed them to worship God. But the Jews at that time believed that Yahweh, the Messiah, would come and, as this king and then destroy the Romans and then establish his new kingdom. And so what they were missing was the message and the timing. It wasn't time yet for these things to happen. They're still to come. And so uh, Jesus then is undoing this. And we see Paul remind them of it. In Romans twelve nineteen. he says, Don't take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, I will repay. And then God told uh, Moses, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against another against anyone of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. That's in Leviticus 19. And so he's encouraging us not to harbor the anger, leave it to God. And the danger then still for us is that in the absence of just saying God will take care of them, we're still harboring that anger that still creates that murder situation in our hearts towards someone else. Jesus, rather, is pointing to meekness. And he hit that in the Beatitudes. He says, hey, consider your possessions nothing for knowing Christ. If someone takes your shirt, be prepared to hand over your coat. Expect to be persecuted. Expect to be injured. And for you, as Christians, as disciples and followers of Christ, our clinging to Christ rather than clinging to our rights for retribution and recourse, is what Jesus is calling us to as Christians. And then he hits home, the last one, love for enemies. He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, there's nowhere in scripture, this is part of that oral tradition, not the written law, where you will see God's command to hate your enemy. Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And we see this in scripture. In, in uh, Exodus 23, God says, if you see the donkey of someone who hates you, that has fallen under its load, do not leave it there and help him. If your enemy is hungry, he says this in Proverbs 25, uh, give him food to eat. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. In Genesis 45, we see with uh, Joseph. Joseph showed kindness to his brothers who had come to him in mercy. They needed food. They didn't even know it was him. And his brothers were the one that sold him into slavery and thought that he was dead. At that point, they were his enemy. He showed love, he showed mercy. So our question then is, if we respond to this, Jesus says in this section, this is verses 43 through 47. He says, "How can you excuse me, love your enemy, listen, love your enemy and pray for those that persecute you. And if you only greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? His call, then, is for love and prayer and for greeting. And so then I have some questions. How can you, as a Christian, show love, pray for, and greet a homosexual couple so that they see the light of Christ by your good deeds and give God praise? How can you, as a Christian, love Pray for and greet someone who disagrees with the Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade so that they see the light of Christ by your good deeds and they give glory and praise to God. How can you, as a Christian, love and pray for and greet someone doesn't matter what side of this coin you find yourself, who supports the Black Lives Matter movement or doesn't, whose desire is to see their version of social justice, who believe in the tenets of critical race theory and want to see the deconstruction of social structures as the solution. Doesn't matter what side of the coin. How do we meet people where they are at? So that, by our good deeds, they see the light of Christ and give God praise. How do we enter into some very difficult and challenging conversations? How can you as a Christian show love, pray for, and greet someone who hates you because you believe in Jesus? Who mocks you? Who sees you as a Bible-banging, self-righteous hypocrite? How do we meet that person so that they see the light of Christ and give glory and praise to God by your love and by your good deeds? Because Jesus is calling us to more. The last verse of this section, Jesus says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And there again, we have this hyperbole. We have this exaggeration. We know that Jesus is perfect. His laws and His ways are good and righteous. We cannot live perfectly, but our desire would that we would be obedient to His commands and the things that He asks us to do and that our lives would reflect the glory and the righteousness of Christ. This is where He is asking us to go. We are called to go beyond what people expect of us. We are called that we would be a light directing people to God by our good deeds. My fear, though, is that we won't take this seriously. Not because you're inherently opposed, but because we're blind. Nose blind. I think about this. Uh, I have stinky feet. That's what I'm saying. And I don't always notice just how perfumey they get. And my wife, so I am nose blind to my own foot stench. I just, right. I am not the only one in this room, but it's okay. But my wife, in her grace and mercy and love, will encourage me to throw on a fresh pair of socks. And that is because I have grown nose blind to what's happening. Right? And nose blindness, listen, by definition is this. It is a temporary, naturally occurring adaptation of your body that leads to your inability to detect or distinguish common sense in your surroundings. It is associated with or where we spend a lot of time. And as Christians, we spend our time in a secular culture, in secular settings. And my fear is that by being drowned and surrounded by a culture that is opposed to our ways is that we have become nose blind to the things that God has called us to do. That we don't see our sin or our hearts for what he's calling us to be. We may say, well, I'm not, I'm not killing anyone. I'm just harboring anger and resentment. I serve at church, I love the children's program, hang out with the worship team, help out with the teens once in a while, I check my boxes, I tithe, I look holy, but my lifestyle outside of Sundays offends people, and my pride and my arrogance doesn't even see how I'm pushing people away from Jesus. I'm not cheating on my wife, I'm faithful, but my mind is constantly running away from me. I keep my word, but in case something better happens or comes up, I might bail. And I justify my arm's length relationships towards people who are gay, toward those who don't look like me, to those who have been in prison, those with tattoos, those who smoke marijuana, those who might be on welfare. We hold everyone at arm's length as Christians. And Jesus shows us how to meet people where they are. Jesus modeled in his ministry, right, in his healing, how he met someone with leprosy and dared touch them to heal their skin in a society where no one would dare go near them or touch them. He sat with publicans and tax collectors, those that were absolutely cast out by society. They, people hated this group of people because of how they took advantage of them. Jesus sat and had dinner with them. When was the last time we've done anything close to that? And then Jesus, right? While we were still sinners, while we were his enemy by nature of how we live, Jesus, in his obedience and his mercy, went to the cross and died. To bring us back into right standing and back into a relationship with Him. Jesus has led the way, the entire way, and He is calling us as Christians to look and live differently than the rest of the world, to follow His example. Amen. Paul warns us. Paul warns us. He does this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. He says, The message of the cross is foolish for those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. Here's my point. If you claim Jesus, yet this message seems to you completely absurd, and you find yourself offended at the mere suggestion of how we are to exercise humility and love and reach out to the members of our society that are disenfranchised, This should be a massive warning about where your heart position is. God talks about this in the Old Testament through Isaiah. He says, these people say they are mine, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and their worship of me is nothing more than man-made rules. And then Jesus gets after it, it's after at the end of this sermon. Chapter 7, verse 21, he warns his disciples, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Although they did all these good things in my name and they followed the rules, he will say what? I never knew you. Away from me. But maybe you're sitting here this morning and you know his teachings are absolute truth and you find yourself then shaking your head at the impossibility of being able to meet this or work this out under your own strength or your own power. And maybe you're just experiencing some fear, or some anxiety about what stepping into this space that God calls us to as Christians actually looks like. How does this work itself out? And it makes us very scared and very nervous. And let me simply encourage you, because we were never meant to walk this out on our own. Jesus, by his Spirit, is living within us. It is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead that is residing in us today. It is by that power, the power of the Holy Spirit, then, that accomplishes God's will and desire in our lives to look different and to meet those in our society. Jesus finishes in the end, verse 24. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus says, take these things that I'm telling you and put them into practice. Our journey, then, is one of participation, not perfection. He's not saying, bat a thousand. He's just saying, put these commands back into your lifestyle. Jesus is still calling us to higher standards. And by his spirit, then, his spirit dwelling within us, the same spirit we just came out of a series on, right? Right? This is when it gets practical, and this is when it gets real, because we realize we reach the end of ourselves. His Spirit enables us and empowers us to do His will. Danny, I'll have you uh, come up. Jesus boils everything down here to love God, love other people, and do the things that I have modeled for you. Then, I want you to go make disciples, teach them to do everything that I've commanded, and then hit repeat. Do it again. Love me love others. This message is a very difficult one. You know here at Shores Community Church we preach the entirety of scripture. We teach out of all of it. And there is good news, right? We we feel the weight of his commands, the reality of meeting the needs of our society when it makes us feel very uncomfortable. And Jesus calls us to step into that. But he also promises that we're not alone. He doesn't leave us to our own devices. He's walking with us. He's given us the spirit so we can do those things He has asked for us. Amen. I'm going to have Danny close us out and then I will pray for us at the end.
1: It's a tough message, isn't it? As I knew that this is what Kevin was going to be teaching on, the Lord reminded me of an old song. And the verses, I'm just going to sing this for you guys and let you kind of take it in, but the verses just get really honest about the state of our hearts and where we we all really are, or it can be. But then the chorus just turns and invites the Lord to bring in his light and and to all of the dark places that are in us and to keep making us more like him. So I'm going to sing this and then at the end we're going to sing I Surrender All Together. a place in the darkness that I used to cling to that presses harsh hope against time. In the absence of martyrs, there's the presence of thieves who only want to rob you blind. They steal away I know they are wrong when they say I am strong as the darkness covers me. So turn on the light and reveal all the glory. Peace and love in the light, in the light. Oh. In my bed and in pictures less proudly displayed A great fool in my life I have been I have squandered till pallid and thin And hung my head in shame and refused to take blame for the darkness I know I've let away So turn on the light and reveal all the glory, I am not afraid to bear all my weakness, knowing in meekness I have a kingdom to gain, where there is peace and love in. Keep to myself all the safe and secure In the arms of a sinner I am Could it be that my worth should depend On that crimson stained grace on a hand Like a lamp on a hill, Lord, I pray in your will to reveal all of you that you can so turn on the light and reveal all the glory i am not afraid to bear all my weakness knowing in meekness i have a kingdom to gain Whoa. Yes, I surrender all. all, to Thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all.
0: Just as a, uh, as a final thought. I, there's a tendency sometimes, especially when we uh, have talks like this, that we, from a society like structure and hierarchical standpoint, not sure if I'm using the right language, but we see people like, you know, presidents of companies and attorneys as, you know, being way up here and then we're just like normal middle class people and then those that are disenfranchised or don't experience the same privileges that we do, they're lower. And then we look at it as we're doing our duty by helping other people that that shouldn't be our position either. See, everyone still needs Jesus, and as Christians, everybody is still a brother and sister in Christ. We're simply meeting people where their needs are and meeting people where they're at. That is what he calls us to do, okay? All right. Lord, I thank you for this message. I thank you that you love us so much and that you love other people so much, one, that you would even dare to use us for your cause. And you care about us and other people enough that you challenge us for more. Because we know as we step into deeper waters, we become more dependent on you. And then we get to experience your love and your grace and your power through your spirit at a much deeper level. And that's what you want us to do. You want us to experience you, Jesus, through his spirit. So Lord, I ask, Lord, that you would just give us courage this week. That you would help us see these areas in our life that perhaps need to be strengthened. That you would give us courage to step into the uncomfortable so that we can point to your Son, Jesus Christ, for your glory. That we would be willing to suffer persecution for the name of Jesus. That our hope would be found in you. I pray a blessing. This is your family. Those that are watching online, those that are here in our church, Lord. Please give them everything they need to be successful for the glory of your son, Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week. Thank you, everybody.
1: Found in your grace, your faithfulness, my fortress.